All right. How about this? Let's pause for a second and pray, and then you can all finish finding your seats. I promised only half an hour, so that means now we've already we got three minutes. We're three minutes in, and I'm, you know how I talk fast. So let us pray. Eternal God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is true wisdom. He is the true temple, the true and holy law. Help us to keep each day holy by receiving his word of comfort that we may find our rest in him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so key bits of information here. Everybody needs a handout. If you don't have one, they're over on the corner of that table. Um, and here's the strategy. Uh, one, the first component of the strategy is I don't really know how this is going to go. So um, it's kind, it's, we'll see. Uh, you guys can help me direct this. And the goal is, uh, as, I, as I wrote in Life Together, to cover First and Second Kings in eight weeks, and, which is actually going to be seven weeks, because I think Rachel Chester is going to tell us a little bit about her trip to Guatemala. So we have seven weeks to do it. So that means today we have to get through most of Solomon, okay? But in order to do that, uh, we, can't, we can't just jump in in the middle of things. We have to, um, we have to get some context um, but I want to set the stage uh, in a couple of different ways. Here's, here's one way to think about uh, the theme for this Bible study. Um, let's see, this marker's not so bright. Okay. Uh, you heard this in Pastor Bruzek's sermon this morning. I wrote it down. I wrote down the quotation. It was great. Scattering seeds seems like a feeble start. Okay? Um, and this is the, so, it, so the story of the sower, if you're going to spread the kingdom, these tiny little seeds, right? Scattering them, that doesn't seem like a very a, a appropriate, effective way to do it, not knowing, you know, which ones are going to grow, which soil is good, which is bad. That's sort of the story of First and Second Kings, and we'll find out right away that just about everything that happens in First and Second Kings, and this is true of much of the Old Testament, of Old Testament history is uh, counterintuitive. It works. If I was running the show, this is not how this is not how I would have done it. But um, that's how that's how we learn about God's character. Okay, we find out that He does things uh, in a particular way that scandalizes us, um, but it reveals His character, which is a character of grace and mercy and loving kindness, um, even in the face of of. So devastating unfaithfulness on the part of his people. So, you have in front of you chapters 1 through 5 of 1 Kings. Now, if I, had, if I had a couple of hours here, I would read this to you, because it's great stuff to read. Um, and I, so I was thinking about whether I should ask you to read it ahead of time or read afterwards. I think I, I prefer the idea of you reading, reading it afterwards. If you want to read it as a whole chunk, read it afterwards, and think about the things we talked about um, as, as we went through the, the, the study today. Now, what's really important here is how 1 Kings begins. Uh, are there, uh, there are, okay, all right. We have, we, have, we have a diverse audience here. So I'm just going to read this, uh, read this first part for you and let it, let it, see how it strikes you. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought from my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. So, 
King David is old, uh, and he's cold. And so they, uh, they bring, uh, a, his servants bring him uh, a, a kind young woman to keep him warm. Uh, it's, it's kind of a shocking way to start First and Second Kings, right? Uh, now, what's going on here is, uh, is sort of reversing the flow of Old Testament narrative up to this point. Here's what I mean by that. Go, go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis, uh, in the Garden of Eden, we have um, God giving every good thing to Adam and Eve, and uh, we, we start at this high point, right? And then they fall into sin, right? So we have, we have this kind of a movement. They start up here, and then they fall into sin, right? Um, and the, the story continues that way. They get a promise, and then Cain kills Abel, right? Kind of goes downhill, right? Abraham gets a promise, uh, and then he sort of takes matters into his own hands, right? Um, this goes on and on and on throughout the Old Testament, right? Uh, this goes on and on and on through Joshua, Judges, and Ruth when they come into the promised land. And it, it's most poignant, I think, personally, I think it's most poignant in 1 Samuel when the people say to Samuel, their prophet, give us a king like the kings of the nations. We... Uh, we're sick of having God as our king. We want a king like the king of the nations. God, said, God sort of, as he often does, lets them have their way, right? He says, this is what's going to happen when I give you a king. He's going to commandeer your sons and send them to battle. He's going to take your property and use it for his own gain. It's going to be terrible. You're not going to like having a king, but if you want one, I'll give you one. So he gave them Saul. Now, the story of Saul, again, looks kind of like this. Uh, everything was great with Saul. He stood a head taller than everybody else. He fought the Philistines. Um, he uh, led the people into battle. But things rapidly declined for him. Downhill. Okay? Uh, and then we get David. Now, things sort of change with David. Um, David is a man after God's own heart. Right? He is the king that is sort of the premier type. The premier foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to be like. Now, if you were going to summarize what it is that makes David so good, what do you think it is? Faith. Faith. Okay. That's a, that's a fantastic Lutheran answer. Let's, let's flesh that out a little bit. Okay? How does David, how does David exhibit his faith? Okay. okay. Now, when he ki- that's, that's a great example. So, the start of David's career, he kills Goliath. Remember what he says to Goliath? You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, right? And now David, I I heard this interesting, I don't know if you know the author Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called David and Goliath. He has all kinds of interesting things to say about the story. One of the things he points out is that uh, David was doubtlessly a skillful slinger and that when you you, uh, used a, a sling... As the ancients did, it had the, the, a rock thrown from a sling had the stopping power of a, of a handgun, right? So, and they, they were accurate, being able to hit a bird in flight. So David was, he was potent with that weapon. But nonetheless, he said to Goliath, I come at you in the name of the Lord. Now, what else? That's one, one place David exhibits his faith. David isn't always, uh, he's not a great guy, often, right? Any examples you can think of? Bathsheba, okay. So he, um, now this is really, it's an interesting story. We're, we're hardly going to make it to 1 Kings, I can tell. Uh, 
David is, is well into his career. David is... It's okay. This is all good stuff. I love this stuff. David is well into his career, and, uh, and then the story of Bathsheba comes around. And the way it's written in, in 2 Samuel is so interesting. Let me just, let me just uh, share this with you. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is how it begins. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, the commander of his armies, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Okay? So, there's a problem. And, and here David looks... It, so, all throughout First and Second Samuel, there's this amazing contrast between David and Saul. One of the things that Saul does so frequently is not fight battles that he should. He doesn't go in and out before the people, right? And that's what, that, that sort of set David apart from the beginning. They, the people said, David has slain his thousands, or t- Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and David went in and out before the people. Saul, meanwhile, sat back in his chair and watched his kingdom crumble to pieces, right? Watched his kingdom be attacked. By, he pursued David relentlessly when he should have been fighting the Philistines, okay? So, uh, David is, uh, is all of a sudden not looking so good here, and he falls into sin, right? He, uh, he covets the wife of Uriah, she becomes pregnant, uh, and then he tries to cover it up. He, he sends Uriah to the front line, and, uh, and Uriah is killed, right? Now, how does the story proceed? What happens next? Well, he, uh, he marries her after a couple of things. Okay, there's a, that happens after a couple of things, too. Who, there's a key character here, Nathan. And who is Nathan? What kind of a person is he? A prophet. Okay, so th- that's a, remember this. Uh, you always need a prophet. Okay? In the Old Testament, you always need a prophet. Do you remember? I remember it because it was one of the few Bible studies I taught during this hour, that, during this year. Abigail and Nabal, right? David ran into trouble because Samuel died. He didn't have a prophet anymore. Um, and Abigail turned out to be the one who bore the word of the Lord to him and said, don't kill my husband because you'll have blood on your hands. Okay? So... Nathan comes to David and get, tells him a parable and says, look, you're the guy who, who committed this sin. What does David say? Yeah, it's, it's very concise. Uh, Nathan says, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before all the sun. He says, I will raise up evil from your house. Now, that's, that comes, comes to pass. Nathan says that. I will raise up, raise up evil against you out of your own house, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay? That is, uh, that's what makes David uh, a man after God's own heart. When he's, when he's confronted with his sin, he repents. This is, this is how the story of David ends at, at the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, David takes a census of all the people, and as soon as he had done it, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I shouldn't have done that. And he repents. And he receives the consequences, um, you know, without, without, uh, without objection. Okay? Just like when he sinned with Bathsheba, he received the consequence of losing his, losing his child. Um, in the, in uh, chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, he receives the consequence of pestilence coming in the land and killing 70,000 of the people. Okay. All right. So to this point, we've had uh, these stories going like this, sort of down hill um, in, in sort of a sad sort of way. 
Now, First Kings comes along, and it starts, it starts in the opposite sort of way, right? Uh, what, what kind of a man is David? Old. He's weak. He's on his deathbed. Okay? All right? So, if you will... Oh, that's a nice bright marker. We're down here. Okay? Um, most stories don't begin with the death of someone. They end with the death of the person, right? This story, First and Second Kings, is about death and resurrection. Okay? Turns out to be the story of the whole Bible, right? But the, but the death and resurrection that we're particularly concerned with here is the death and resurrection of David's kingdom. All right? God gave David a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I know I gave you 1 Kings. I have lots to say about 1 and 2 Samuel. So um, I'll just read it to you. He says, uh, God says to David, David wants to build a temple, a house for God. And God says, no, you can't do it because you're, you, have, you have blood on your hands, right? You're, you've, you've been a violent man. And God says to David, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Offspring, uh, in this case, finally refers to Jesus, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Okay, so David's going to die, but David's kingdom is not going to die, all right? David's kingdom is going to suffer um, at, the hands of, at the hands of his enemies, um, even from within his own house. We saw that all throughout 2 Samuel. His sons rebelled against him. His son Absalom tried to take the throne from him. Um, but in it, it, the, the, the promise is that his kingdom will persevere. Now, we start to see this a bit in... Uh, in 1 Kings. Okay, so we have this episode that begins 1 Kings, and it doesn't look very good, right? David is kind of, uh, he's, he, well, he's just sort of lying there, right? Not doing much of anything. Um, and his servants, of course, had this great idea. We will we'll get him to be, you know, a great king again by giving him this young maiden. He doesn't, it, that's, that doesn't rouse him to, to action, okay? And he needs to be roused to action because of what follows next in the narrative. Notice what happens Follow the arrow down to verse 5 there. Now Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself. Adonijah is the fourth son of David. The first three sons, uh, the first and the third sons are dead. The second one we presume dead because he's not in the picture, right? So the fourth one, the one presumptive king, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So normally, this, this fellow would have every reason to, to take the kingdom for himself or to, to receive the kingdom. The problem is, of course, he's grasping it for himself. 
Moreover, as we find out, the kingdom has been promised to somebody else, to Solomon. David swore to Bathsheba, whose name means daughter of oath, right? So she's, her, her, her character is all important in this story. Uh, he swore to her that Solomon, her son, would reign after David. So, uh, just we're, we're going we're gonna to glide along here now since we've got ten minutes left. Nathan, Nathan and Bathsheba. You're, you're, it rings to mind instantly the story of David sinning with Bathsheba. Um, they say, no, Solomon is supposed to be king because David promised, and they put together this little plot. Uh, Bathsheba goes into, Dave, into David's room and reminds him, look, you, uh, you promised that uh, Solomon's going to be king. And it's like, it's like out of a movie, right? So she's in there talking to David and Nathan who she's been plotting with, comes in and says, hey, do you remember you, you, you said Solomon was going to be king? Did you know that Adonijah set himself up as king? And in the Bible, in Old Testament times, in, in, in the ancient Near East, when you have two witnesses, you, you got what you need. So David, all of a sudden, having, having been lying in bed, is now roused to action. Now David acts, okay? Turn to, let's see, we're looking at the bottom of page two here. King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before him. And the king swore, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then look at the next red underlined thing. This is how that happens. David makes it happen. Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule and bring it down to Gihon, okay? So when you hear the story of uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a, on a mule, on a donkey, right? Uh, that's not exactly, that's not exactly the, the, the point of humility at, at which Jesus is entering in Jerusalem. There he's entering, just like Solomon did, to be, to be crowned king, right? Um, so Solomon is crowned king, and all of his enemies, Adonijah and all the men who fought against David, uh, they're dismayed because Solomon has been crowned king. And the people say, just like they do, sort of just like they do on Palm Sunday, um, let's see, this is verse 39, they blew the trumpet, let's see, the bottom of the second full paragraph, and all the people said, long live King Solomon, and the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Now, so back to this theme, that's not how I would have done it. Um... Clearly, in order for Solomon to be king, in order for Solomon to reign in David's place, there had to be this kind of intrigue, right? This kind of political maneuvering, right? Because Adonijah had set himself up to be king. But this is precisely how God acts. So you've, seen, you've heard this before, I think. Um, if, you look, if you listen to the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of Matthew... It goes like this. The, the book of the genea- I gotta stop doing that. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, and so forth. But then we get some, some interesting characters. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So Matthew points out right away that in Jesus' lineage and in Jesus' ancestry is not only Solomon, who, who wasn't the oldest son of David, but was given, given the throne, just like uh, Jacob you know, taking the birthright from Esau, the younger son, taking the birthright from Esau. It's just like Solomon isn't, the, isn't sort of the rightful throne by lineage, right, rightful king by lineage, 
Um, he also is the son of uh, Uriah's wife. Okay? This is how God is acting in history. So now, it, it, in, in Matthew chapter 1, um, we, have a, we have a whole line of kings that follow after Solomon. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and so forth. We'll hear about all those folks in First and Second Kings here. And they're not great people, right? Uh, they do terrible, awful, horrible things. And uh, somehow, God is working through that, working in history uh, to, make, to make room for his, his Savior, his Messiah. Everybody on board so far? This is, what, this is what First and Second Kings is about. It's about starting down here um, with things not looking so good for David and God using sort of normal, mundane, uh, scandalous means to raise up his kingdom. So, this is what happens with Solomon. Uh, Solomon becomes king and everything goes great. He takes care of all of David's enemies. That's chapter 2. Okay, we'll just skip over that. It's a little bit bloody. Now, however, I, I can't skip over it. Okay, so he takes care of David's enemies, but, he, but, but before he does that, this is, this is the other thing that fits within this theme. That's not how I would have done it. Bear this in mind as we study First and Second Kings. By the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, if we get there, uh, you, will be, you, will, you will probably find yourself saying, finally, they got what they deserved, right? Finally, the people of Israel got what they had coming to them, okay? All throughout the, the book of 1 and 2 Kings, God is, is uh, eminently patient with the people of Israel. When Solomon is confronted with his father's enemies, his first move is not to execute them, but to show them clemency, right? He says, if you show yourself, if you prove yourselves to be righteous men, I won't, I won't execute judgment on, on you. Now, of course, they don't, and so they get, they, get the, they get axed. But he begins by saying, by, by being patient with them, even though they, even though they fought against his father. Uh, there's an author, Peter Lightheart, who wrote a commentary on First and Second Kings, and this is, uh, this is how he summarizes uh, this, this theme of clemency, this theme of long-suffering that sort of runs throughout the book. The impression we get from First and Second Kings is not that God is a stingy disciplinarian with an anger problem. If anything, the God of First and Second Kings is irresponsibly indulgent towards his people, a God who does not seem to realize that he cannot run the world without a dose of law and order. By the time Judah is sent into the Babylonian exile in 2 Kings 25, we're not saying, my, what a harsh God. If we read attentively, we're saying, it's about time. What took him so long? The offense of the theology proper of 1 and 2 Kings is not that God is angry with the innocent. The offense is the offense of Jonah. You remember Jonah who wanted the people of Nineveh to get swallowed up by fire, right? The offense of God, it's the offense of God's mercy. So God is merciful to the people of Israel in spite of their wicked kings, in spite of their Baal worship, in spite of the fact that they, they abandon him left and right. The offense of Yahweh's unearthly patience with the irascible and unresponsive. And that is really good news, right? That God is so patient. Okay. Now, the last verse of chapter 2. The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And then you know the story of chapter 3, I think. This is, this is one of those good old Sunday school stories, right? 
God comes to Solomon and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Okay. Um, here's another theme to, uh, to keep in mind. I'm going to have to print this out next time so that you, because I know what happens during the week to your memories, to my memory. Um, <laughs> wisdom, Torah, which is, uh, which is the law, and the temple. These three things seem to offer great hope for the people of Israel. In the case of Solomon, wisdom is, is, this, is this prized thing that he asks God for, and he's given, and he runs the kingdom like a champion. Okay, If you, read, if you, if you take time, it's, it's a little bit tedious, but if you take time to read all of the things that, that uh, Saul does from a management perspective, he runs this enormous kingdom like a pro because he's got this wisdom. What we find out, though, however, is that his wisdom is imperfect. Okay? His wisdom uh, falls victim to, uh, to the temptation of, of uh, false gods, of idolatry. The same thing is, we'll find out is true of the Torah, God's law that he gave to his people. Uh, you know, executing, executing God's law doesn't keep the people from following after other gods. Neither does the temple. Neither does having the temple there uh, in Jerusalem, the temple that Solomon builds. So keep those things in mind as we go along here. Okay, I think you know this story. Solomon asks for wisdom. Now, uh, turn to page 8. We're flipping through here. Turn to page 8. There's some red underlined text there. This is what Solomon asks for. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Now, there's a key phrase in there that that maybe rings a bell of something that happened earlier in the Bible. Somebody somebody said it. Yeah, right. So, So Solomon asks God here for the discernment of good and evil, which is, of course, the thing that Adam and Eve grasped at by taking the, the, the fruit, right? So Solomon is a righteous man here, not by taking it for himself, but by asking God for it, okay? And God gives him that wisdom. There's, this, if you want to sort of parse out the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, there's all kinds of different ways to do it. One, one way is the difference between Saul and David. Saul is, is impenitent in the face of his sins. David is, is always penitent and humble. Another way to, to parse it out is to say, uh, unrighteousness grasps after what is not right, what does not belong to it, whereas righteousness receives, receives good things from God, petitions good things, petitions God for good things. So he asks for discernment between good and evil. Uh, he's like Adam here, receiving the knowledge of good and evil, but here it's a gift from God and not a, and not a curse, Okay. We have this great story of how, how Solomon uh, is wise, right? I'm going to slice the baby in half. No, no, don't do that. Okay, she's the mom, right? You know that story? Okay. Now, what we need to do is uh, flip to page 10. Here's how the story's going. It's, it's going great. Everything's uphill. Solomon is like a new Adam. Things are looking more and more like paradise, and we hear it. Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and they drank and they were happy. It sounds like paradise, right? 
everything is fantastic. Everything is awesome, right? We, I've watched the Lego movie a few times lately. Um, um, okay. Now, uh, we, we hear all about this um, in, in chapter 5. We won't go through the details there. But Solomon is building a temple, is, is setting out to build a temple, which, um, if you think about the Garden of Eden, what characterizes the Garden of Eden? What is different between, what's the difference between being inside the Garden of Eden and outside the Garden of Eden? Sin, okay. So, there's, so inside is, is no sin, outside is sin. What about uh, the presence of God? God, God, yeah. Right. So by building a temple, Solomon is bringing, bringing the people of Israel back to a place where they can have communion with God, where they can eat and drink and rejoice with God, okay? Um, it, sound, it sounds an awful lot like we do, what we do here on a Sunday morning, right? Um, and that's, that's where we end at chapter 5. Things have, have swept up like this. Um, and we end in a really high, on a really high note. It's not going to look so good for the rest of First and Second Kings, but I thought maybe we should end on a positive note today. Do you have any questions? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes, please. I did not. You'll think that we should take, you know, an offering for new markers, but no, no, we should. <laughs> we'll get new markers. We have fun for that. So. Uh, Carenet. Carenet. There you go. Sorry, Perfect. my my my. No, no, I've dropped ball. Yeah. Perfect. Anything else? Thank All right. Yeah. Let's pray. Yep. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. To be continued.